Welcome to the St. Richard's Episcopal Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message by Reverend Cameron Nations. For more information, please visit strichards.org. So today we hear in our gospel reading from Matthew about the transfiguration. The transfiguration. And this is, theologically speaking, actually one of the most important parts of the gospels, things that happen in in the gospels. Uh, And the scene of Jesus being transfigured there on the mountain has captivated the Christian imagination for centuries and centuries. You see iconography of the transfiguration, for instance. Church is named after the transfiguration. Uh, But I think to contemporary or modern hearers of this story, we sort of wonder about this. What's going on here? Jesus starts like glowing or something weird, and then, you know, Moses and Elijah, two people who are long, long gone at this point, uh, both in very different ways, um, they just appear there. I mean, what's, what's happening in this story? And so I think the mystery at the heart of this story for modern readers is why preachers, I think, have a tendency to want to, tend to turn this, rather, into some kind of object lesson or to find some practical takeaway, right, that we can all package up and take out in our to-go box with us from church today to be able to apply in our everyday lives. Um, I know I've been guilty of this. In fact, actually, I was about to be guilty of this as I sat down to write my sermon. Until, until, I came across uh, an article written by uh, a pretty popular, actually, Methodist preacher and writer named Jason Michelli. I don't know if some of you may know his name. He has a podcast called Crackers and Grape Juice, which is uh, actually a pretty good podcast. And um, he... uh, He's a pretty young guy. I think he's in his 40s now, but he got cancer pretty young, and he has a book about his experience battling cancer called Cancer is Funny. Um, I commend his work to you. It's, it's good stuff. But, um, but I guess the algorithm of Facebook decided I needed to read Jason Michelli's words about this passage, um, lest I preach one of these standard sermons. And, and so I want to cite my sources by saying most of today's sermon is really Jason Michelli, okay? <laughs> um, and I quote from him a lot, and so I, I always, preachers are always looking for good material, but we don't need to pass it off as our own. I mean, look, you know, I'm happy to give Jason some credit for this. Um, but anyway, in this, in this article, which may have actually been an, an address initially, may have been a sermon itself, but I was reading it, Um, Jason Michelli identifies two common ways that preachers usually approach this text, the story of the transfiguration. Um, He says that, uh, first of all, we like to focus on Peter. First of all, we like to focus on Peter here. And we chalk this episode up as yet another example, he writes, of obtuse, dunder-tongued Peter getting Jesus backwards. Peter's getting it wrong here. and that the preacher is expected to chide Peter for wanting to preserve this spiritual mountaintop experience, right? We read the, we read the transfiguration in this way. Uh, we try to, again, to make it more practically applicable. Preachers like to talk about it as, well, haven't we all had this mountaintop experience, right? Some of us have, you know, maybe you've been on a church retreat or, or I mean, maybe it was just this moment of transcendence you experienced climbing the top of a mountain, right? You look out and you see the beauty and wonder of nature, and you have just this like, oh my goodness, you know? And then you, uh, and and, you know, so okay, so these mountaintop experiences, we like to talk about it that way. Um, And so Jason Michelli says from there, after we frame it that way, preaching on the transfiguration is permitted to go one of two ways, he says. 
The first way is to pivot from Peter's foolish gesture of wanting to kind of build some, pitch some tents uh, and hang out there up on the mountain um, to the, Michelle writes, supposedly sophisticated observation that discipleship isn't about adoring God's glory or about mountaintop experiences, but is actually about going back down the mountain, right? That discipleship is about what happens down the mountain. Uh, in the grit and grind of everyday life where we can feed the hungry and clothe the naked and do all of the other things. And this is Michelle's quote, all everything else that upper middle class Christians are not embarrassed to affirm. Right? This is his thing. That's what I'm saying. He's, he's, he's sharp. Now, of course, he would also say there's absolutely nothing wrong with feeding the hungry and clothing the naked. That we're actually commanded to do that. But that's not his point, okay? Um, so he says that's one way we can turn, the, we can look at this passage, is talking about how, yes, it's a mountaintop experience, but we all know that discipleship doesn't happen on the mountain. Or, he says, you can pivot uh, to um, focusing again on Peter. Um, and, uh, okay, I shouldn't have scrolled too far down in my notes. So you can pivot again, focusing on Peter and uh, encouraging the congregation to identify with him, the disciple whose mouth is always quicker than his mind and whose ambition never seems to measure up to his courage, right? Uh, to preach Peter to the congregation and to comfort the congregation that Peter is just like you and me, a foolish, imperfect follower who fails at his faith as often as he gets it right, and yet Jesus loves him and therefore you and me and builds the church on him, right? And I've actually preached that sermon about Peter in other contexts. So, like I said, you were about to get that one again today, um, had I not read this. So, Michelle sums it up. He says, this is how preachers preach this text. Go back down the mountain and back into, quote, unquote, real life. Or, look at Peter, he's just like you. And I do actually think both of those are valid ways, might I add, of preaching this to, uh, you know, just give my former self a little bit of credit. Okay, I do think you can preach it that way. Um, but I was struck by Michelli's analysis and in, in his sort of um, his thesis uh, of this post, because he goes on to, to to talk about how that maybe instead of focusing on Peter, we should focus on what Peter focused on. Sort of what he ends up saying. He continues. He writes. Uh, Ludwig Feuerbach, a 19th century critic of religion, accused Christians that all of our theology, all of our talking about God, is really only anthropology. That rather than talking about God as we claim, we're in fact only speaking about ourselves in a loud voice. I love that quote. Sometimes I've been guilty of that as a preacher, I think. And so Michelle says that there's perhaps no better proof of Feuerbach's accusation than our propensity to make Peter the point of this particular story. To make this theophany, or this happening of God, this theophany, into anthropology, or to be about man, humanity. He says to transfigure the story into something ordinary. I like this transfigure there, but um, anyway, he continues getting us to consider what Peter might actually think about himself being the subject of sermons on this text, right? Text, right? Like, what would Peter actually think about a preacher preaching on him as the exemplar here? Uh, Michelle uh, points out that we shouldn't forget that this is the same Peter 
who insisted that he was not worthy to die in the same manner as Christ and so asked to be crucified upside down. Right? And so Michelle's argument is, more than any of us, Peter would know that he should not be the subject of today's sermon. Peter would know that he's not the one that we should be looking at in this scene. And Michelle believes that the temptation for preachers to make today's text all about Peter as a lesson about discipleship uh, might not be the best way to see this text in our relationship to our life as disciples of Jesus. And so, as I said, instead of looking at Peter, we should be looking at what Peter was looking at, i.e., Jesus. Michelle says not only is this good, it is the essence of discipleship. Indeed, in this image of the transfigured Christ, this mysterious thing that we read about today, Peter sees the life of all lives flash before his eyes. In one instant of transfigured clarity, Peter sees the humanity of Jesus suffused with the eternal glory of God, and in that instant, Peter glimpses the mystery of our faith, that God became human so that humanity might become God, Michelle writes. This is where the good news is to be found. Not in Peter being as dumb or as scared as you and me. Not in a message like serve the poor that you would still agree with even if you didn't know Jesus. No, the good news, Michelle writes, is found in the same glory that transfigured the face of Moses, as we read about uh, in our Old Testament reading today, and that dwelt in the temple and rested upon the ark and overshadowed Mary, pervading even Jesus' humanity and also one day ours. God became like us, he says. That's what Peter sees so that we might become like God. And that is what Peter eventually learns. The light that radiates Jesus' flesh is the same light that said, let there be. It's the same light that the world awaits with groaning and labor pains and sighs that are too deep for words. It's the light that will one day make all of creation a burning bush, a fire with God's glory, but not consumed by it. I couldn't come up with anything as good as that to say, which is really why I'm quoting his, uh, his essay, sermon, what have you, uh, today. But I was challenged by his words. On refocusing our attention not on Peter, as I want to do, because I identify with Peter significantly. Um, my ambition for holiness never quite reaches my actuality, okay? I, I think that focusing not on what happens when we come down from the mountain or what we do after we have a mountaintop experience, but focusing on Jesus here is the way to go this morning. And what's interesting is uh, if the rest of my social media accounts are any indication, which I'm not sure what they're an indication of, by the way, but if they are an indication of anything, the things I've seen this week, many preachers, many of my fellow colleagues, even in other denominations, who have been discussing this passage this week and what they would preach, seem to be feeling the same way. Maybe, they all, maybe the algorithm showed them all the same thing. I don't know, but we're all talking about it, okay? Multiple preachers I saw this week uh, discussing this passage left comments to one another talking about how their sermons today were going to emphasize our need to simply focus on the glory of God and allow that focusing on God's glory to shake us up, to break us open, and to be struck in wonder and awe by the mystery of the whole thing. That that was what they were going to preach about, especially as we're about to head into Lent, right? We're 
Now, it's always dangerous business to psychologize large groups of people or to use non-representative samples to make any sort of conclusion. But I'm going to do both right now. <laughs> That's not going to stop me. Um, I was meditating a bit on why was there this shift in focus? You know, why were we all kind of thinking about this passage a little bit differently? And I think that it, again, we're on shaky ground here, but I think, I think it's because it describes what so many of us, pastors included, need right now. We don't really need to come down from the mountain because we've been in the valley for a while. I think we kind of feel that, right? What we need instead is a divine reminder that wonder and enchantment and awe at what God can do is fine to dwell in for a little while. Today, at this very service, we've got a baptism. It's very exciting. It's like one last hallelujah celebration gasp right before we head into Lent and uh, start dwelling on our sins and repentance next week. Well, I guess you dwell on your sins and repentance and baptism too, but in a different way. Um, but we have a baptism this morning. Will Montero, who's getting baptized, um, is, this is very exciting because uh, I baptized his mom, Kate, just last month, uh, right before the bishop's visit. The week before, we had those three baptisms. Remember, we had a baby and a teenager and an adult, and she was the adult, um, and, uh, which I guess would be obvious if she's Will's mom, right? <laughs> uh, but, uh, but... I think that baptism is a bit like the first step up that mountain, right? The first glimpse of the radiant glory of God, as well as being on top of that mountain all at the same time. Baptism, of course, though we're involved <laughs> in baptism, isn't primarily about us, really. It's about God, right? It's about God's mercy, God's power, God's ability, and desire to redeem. And it made me consider what's mentioned in the Thanksgiving over the water, the prayer that I'll pray in a minute at the font, when talking about the Holy Spirit, right? We talk about how the Holy Spirit hovered over the waters at creation, that the Holy Spirit parted the Red Sea to deliver Israel out of slavery in Egypt, that the same Holy Spirit descended from the heavens like a dove when Jesus himself was baptized in the River Jordan as God proclaims some words that should sound pretty familiar to us because they also appear in today's gospel reading. Here is my son, my beloved... We always know the King James. That's always what I can guarantee. Yes, in whom I am well pleased. Although Matthew today at the Transfiguration adds, listen to him, right? Matthew's account. Listen to that guy. Listen to him. But this rung in my ears, I think, because there's a parallel here to um, one of the quotes I read earlier from Jason Michelli's article about the light. Right? I don't know if you remember this but that, that last quote about the light that radiates from Jesus at the Transfiguration and how it connects Peter to us, to the power of God working throughout time from the dawn of creation to the hope that is to come, that beautiful line about all of the earth being like the burning bush on fire but not consumed, uh, to bringing about our redemption and the reconciliation of all things. I love it. It's a lot of resonance. 
Now, sure, there's always more work for us to do, right? There's always more work for us to do. There always is more time that we need to spend being the hands and feet of Jesus. There's always more that we need to do. But the reality is, is that we're going to spend the rest of this week and the rest of the week after that and the rest of the week after that and the week after that and also probably the week after that and, and the week after that one too. Uh, we're going to spend all of those living our lives back down the mountain, right? And so this whole sermon really is just to say, let's not pass on every single moment that we get to simply dwell in the glory of the one who created us, redeems us, and sustains us. To allow ourselves to be transformed by the glory we encounter there. Whether it's in our prayers, in our song, in the sacraments, in baptism, in the bread, and the wine. So I guess what I would say is maybe let's actually kind of be like Peter after all. <laughs> but in a different way. Let's be like Peter and desire to simply dwell here for the time that we get. To desire to dwell in God's presence. Because as Jesus prompts Peter and prompts all of us, we'll come down the mountain soon enough. Amen. Thank you for tuning in. For service times or more information on St. Richard's, please visit strichards.org.